1: Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion, with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello and welcome to this special episode of The Paddock and the Pavilion. On the 12th of March 1977, England played Australia in the centenary test at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. And today's guest, Rick McCosker, opened the batting for the home side in this iconic match. The match soon became a game to remember for Rick, a painful one at that, after he suffered a broken jaw after 30 minutes of play, opening the batting in the first innings. Rick later showed extreme bravery in returning to bat in the second innings. I spoke to Rick at his home in Newcastle, New South Wales, about his international career of ashes battles, a World Cup final and Packer Super Tests, and his major life and career change in 2012. Don't forget to send in those grand national questions for Richard Pittman and enjoy today's podcast. Hello, Rick. Good evening. Delighted to speak to you on the paddock and the pavilion. Good evening, Stephen. Lovely to speak to you. Well, what's life been like in Newcastle uh, since,
0: well, for the last 12 months? Last 12 months, nothing much has changed, and not certainly not as much as what's been happening in the UK. Um, we've had very little, if any, um Restrictions as far as um, you know the COVID restrictions go. So for us, us being my wife and I, we've just sort of basically kept our head down. We haven't uh, haven't done too much out of the ordinary. <clears throat> haven't uh, haven't been able to go anywhere. Unfortunately, we have family in France, uh, family in New Zealand, and in Melbourne. So we haven't been able to visit any of those, any of our family. So um, that's that's been the toughest for us. Um, we haven't had any close connection to uh, the ca- coronavirus personally here in Newcastle. So we've been very lucky.
1: Well, that's good news. We're still in a, in a lockdown here. Now, as an ex-player and a former selector, do you still follow
0: the game of cricket closely? Um, yeah, fairly closely. Uh, certainly test matches. I do in international matches. Our Sheffield Shield, our, our interstate competition. In following that, New South Wales um, won the uh, the Sheffield Shield last season, and they're coming second this season. So that's always of interest to me because that's the the stepping stone for our test team. So it's always very important competition watched with interest. Uh, the test series against India, and uh, although I can't say I enjoyed it all that much, but um, had to be. Have to admit, that I was very impressed with the Indian team and by their the way that they were able to uh, come back from just come back from, from all the injuries that they had uh, to key players and uh, the loss of their their captain and just their um, just their resilience and um, the way they were able to commit to a very 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 good team performance. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm very impressed. Uh, had to, um, had, you know, we have to respect how good they were, how good they played, and um, it was, and I think it's a sign of how good this Indian team and their their squad is, and will be probably for quite some time by the look of it.
1: Yeah, as an Englishman, we we probably not want to speak about. Uh, how good India are at the moment? So they seem to have good bowlers in both spin no. and pace.
0: Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, so at what it, at present it's two uh, one to India on the, in your series. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Yeah,
0: yeah. So we've been getting that uh, on our pay TV here in uh, in Australia, and I've uh, been watching the uh, these test matches with interest. Can't believe how much um, spin, wickets, particularly the last test match, um, for the match to be completed in two days, that's just incomprehensible. Right, you're moving, moving on to your own
1: sort of cricketing career. Now, you're born in a bush mining town. <laughs>
0: how, bush mining town. How how small was it? Town was actually, um, well, it was more of a, I was actually... On a um, grew up on a sheep farm, and so our our uh, our farm was around about five thousand acres in in area, which is not big by by Australian standards. But um, that's that's where I initially grew up until I was about twelve. We moved into to town, uh, a town called Inverell, Northern New South Wales, which has a population around about fifteen thousand people. Um, a lovely town. Lovely people, and that's that's where I started playing cricket uh, during my high school days, and um, then play. I started to play against um, the in the senior competition against older men um, while while I was still at school. And then you moved to Sydney when you were twenty
1: one to work for a bank. Is that right? Yeah,
0: that's correct. I was actually employed in a bank in my hometown in rural. And in those days, it was um, quite a good job in in towns, and so I worked there for two or three years, and then got transferred to Sydney when I was when it was suggested that I move to Sydney and try and um, see if I could um, go further in in in, in cricket. Um, I didn't particularly want to. I didn't particularly want to leave my hometown, but <clears throat> that was the only way that I could work out. I could find out whether I was going to go any further or not. So that was just before I turned 21. And then uh,
1: six years later, you made your state debut for New South Wales
0: against South
1: Australia.
0: Correct. Yeah. It took me a while uh, because I think a boy from the bush going into the big city, uh, I found it very difficult to come to terms with that. And so it it took that that long for me to get to the stage where I was ready for... um, uh, to play for my state, and uh, and I was ready at that time. So even though I was a little bit older than than some, um, I I think that was an advantage because um, physically and and mentally and emotionally I was I was ready to play for the state. So it happened. First game was against South Australia on the Sydney Quick Ground, and uh, at that stage we had a system called bonus points, and it was designed to try and encourage teams to. Um, to declare after, after 80 overs, and you were given bonus points for certain things. So at that point in time, I was batting at number six and had to go in and uh, basically had to pretty much just log straight away as if it was a 2020 game, but there was no 2020 at that stage. So it was a difficult situation for me to go into. But from there, uh, I moved up the order and spent quite some time um, at number three. And um, that's where I started to, to score some hundreds. And um, from there, uh, I was selected in the Australian team. And uh, again, Stephen, I was very fortunate because I was selected at the right time. Yeah. And not every player, not every player who gets selected for their country is selected at the right time. Um, some... before. They are ready and some at a past the time they were ready. But for me, it was just the right time and I'd scored a few hundreds and uh, so I got selected. On the first test, which was the Nash's test again. Just to uh, go back, you
1: you, you say you scored a few. So just to go back, you said you scored a few hundreds. Well, you scored four consecutive centuries in the Sheffield Shield and then got selected for Australia in the. Seventy-four, seventy-five. 75, well, it was the 1975, and this was at uh, Sydney as well, wasn't it, the Test
0: debut? That's right, correct. Yeah, it was actually uh, 11.30 on Saturday morning, the 4th of January, 1975. You remember it well, then. <laughs> <laughs> I just happen to remember it well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all very, um, very important the first time you represent your country, and for me, I'll, I'll always remember that day. And you were joining a, an
1: Australian team full of some very famous players Rodney Marsh, Dennis Lilly, the Chapel mm. Brothers, Doug Walters. Um, yep. You were 2 0 up in the series. Uh, what yep. was the England side? How how did they come across? Because they, they were having injuries, people were coming and going.
0: Mm. Well, I think at that stage that are a little bit of shell shock. Um, the barrage that they'd uh, had from uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, they were. Uh, it was a tough time for them and, um, they had actually, they had some injuries and, um, they had, uh, brought out Colin Cowdery from England, um, it was probably towards the end of his career, but it's, he was, he was amazing. He just stood up to the, to the fast bowlers and got hit everywhere, but he, um, he was just, you know, a lot of courage and, um, you know, he played, played some good shots, but it was, it was tough for the English team because they were down in the series and um, we had um, a very, very good all-round test side. So uh, they they were really, really feeling it by the time we got to Sydney for the fourth test. So how, how quick was Tomo? Tomo was quick um, and in a way a bit nasty, not not nasty because he 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 was trying to hit people, but nasty because of the, his action, and uh, because he was, he could get uh, such a lot of pace and bounce off the wicket, and that made him different. And he had a different action, so that made him difficult to bat against. And um, I had to bat against him many times, um, playing in Sheffield Shield and for New South Wales versus Queensland. And he was tough, um, and he was quick. Um, Probably not, not really any quicker than Dennis, Lily, or even, say, Bob Willis. But he was just different. The different extra bounce that he could get off the wicket made, made him a bit more, I guess, dangerous from a uh, physical point of view. Well, you had a successful
1: series, averaging 40, scoring over 200 runs. And then you were then selected for your first Ashes Tour in 1975, which, like, 2019 also included a world cup year so i just wanted to start by talking about the world cup which in that year 1975 was played over just 2 weeks a uh, far cry from from now nowadays with world
0: Absolutely. cups <clears throat> it was a tough was two weeks it, what was it like playing in a, in a world uh, cup look look it was very exciting because it was the first one and uh, we, before the first game, uh, we, all the teams were invited to um, have afternoon tea with um, uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. So it was all very exciting, particularly for me, um, first time in England. And a and, uh, few days after we arrived, we found ourselves at Buckingham Palace. So it was pretty exciting, but um, the competition was, was fairly new to us. We hadn't played much one day cricket. So, um, we we had quite a bit to learn, but um, we had uh, had a couple of good games and uh, particularly uh, magnificent uh, performance by Gary Gilmore against England in the Headingley semi-final against England. Um, I didn't think you'd forget that one. No, no, not at all. Look, I was there that day, and that was probably the best bit of spring bowling I have ever seen at any time. It was just magnificent. And on top of that, we, we were in trouble in our innings and he came out and uh, he got 26 to 28 in no time and, and won the game for us. So that got us into the final against West Indies. And so we thought we were doing pretty well to, uh, for our first uh, World Cup to get into the final. But um, in, in the end, we we're, were outplayed by West Indies. Um, I had such a great team. And in the end, it was probably a bit closer than we thought it would be. It um, they, they beat us by 17 runs, yeah. but uh, they, were, they were just too good on the day. I mean, that was one of
1: the most famous one-day cricket matches, even to this day, with Clive Lloyd scoring that yeah. 100. Yeah, Rowan a mean, getting 50.
0: Yeah, yeah, Clive Lloyd that day was brutal. Uh, I remember fielding fielding on the fence that cover uphill from you know like, it's like at Lords. An uphill, and he smashed one to the covers, and uh, I only had just the time to bend down, and the ball was on me. So if it had been a yard either either side of me, I would not have been able to field it. He was just battered with so much power, and then their fielding was brilliant. So, um, Viv Richards just just kept hitting the stumps and running our guys out. So yeah, it was a memorable match, and and um, having such a uh, a large West Indian. Crowd. Um, it was yeah. It was obviously an away game for us and a home game for West Indies. But besides that, it was just so exciting. Uh, so um, so much noise and excitement from the crowd. They they absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's interesting you said about Clive Lloyd. I actually
1: last night looked up his strike rate, and uh, we, everyone talks about strike rates now. And his strike rate in that mm-hmm. game was 120, which. Would be Mm. good even today, you
0: know. That's right. Yeah, in those days it was phenomenal because uh, we're all sort of trying to work out how do we play this, um, you know, this limited over cricket. And uh, but he, I think he learned quicker than most of us.
1: Yeah, yours right it was twenty nine. Actually, I did check that as well. uh... I think it was seven runs. Seven. Yeah, you were caught. Caught. um, Caught and slip off. Caught Calituran, bold Keith Boyce. Yeah. Least, at least you weren't run out. True.
0: Yeah. Yep. So uh, yeah, it was it was my own way of getting out. Uh, I didn't want to be the same as the other guys. No. And then, of course, we had the,
1: the Ashes of, of 75, um, a series that the Australians won 1-0 by winning the first test at uh, Edgbaston. Um, but yep. you have painful memories a bit from the tour because in the Headingley test... Uh, you were 95 not out overnight, and then the pitch was vandalised, and you were prevented from the chance of scoring an Ashes century.
0: Yeah, that's true. But what what was worse was the fact that um, we were written off by the English press that um, that we had no one in we were able to get the runs. We, we were four down, and we only we needed about another 200 runs, and um, we were written off by the English press. And um, so we were pretty determined um, that we were going to get those runs. But as it turned out, even if the pitch hadn't been vandalised, we wouldn't have got them anyway because next day it basically rained all day. So we may may not even have got on uh, at the beginning. So you know, I would never know whether um, whether I was that was going to be my first century or not, um, and whether we were going to be able to. To bat and make history and, and um, win the test match, but so because the weather decided to take a hand and that was it anyway. But you got a century in the the
1: uh, final test at the Oval, which was a, a six day test match. You'd we'd get three games in that nowadays.
0: <laughs> if England, <laughs> that's right. But you would, you wouldn't get three games on that Oval wicket in, in 1975 um, because the summer was such a hot, dry one uh it was perfect for for batting and um you difficult for fast bowlers but that, that wicket uh the overall that last test was just so flat and it was it was amazing actually that we're able to bowl out England in the first innings. But our mistake then was to to send England back in back in on the second innings and then we fielded for the next five days. Um thanks to amongst others for Bob Woolman. Um he just batted forever. Um, John Edrich too, but um, it it was yeah it was memorable for me because I had a long uh, partnership with uh, with my captain, uh, with Ian Chapel. He got a hundred as well, and um, so we uh, we batted from about the second over I think it was for the rest of that day, and then into the second day. in Our partnership, so um, I really really enjoyed batting. Uh, really enjoyed getting my first hundred, and batting with with Ian. Um uh, yeah that was good and uh yeah it was it was um an innings and a day that I won't forget it was a very successful tour for
1: you. you got over four hundred runs in mm. the test matches and and actually got over a thousand runs on the tour, which would be impossible oh. these days so.
0: yeah, yeah, look it was, but seven i and again it was it was such a, a hot, dry summer, it was yeah perfect for particularly opening batsmen um it wasn't uh it wasn't the the type of summer and conditions that we were to find two years later in seventy seven. It was completely different. But yeah, you know, um, yeah. Look, I just just so much enjoyed England. Um, I enjoyed the whole the whole part of it. My mother actually originally came from England. She was uh, come from Derbyshire, from Derby, and I had an auntie still living in England. And so for me, it was uh, it was wonderful just to be able to. See parts of England that I would have never seen otherwise, and to spend some time with my auntie and go back to where the um, the city where my mother was born and where she met my father during the war. So it was all very interesting for me.
1: Oh, that must have been interesting because I I read that your father was um, in uh, in bomber command during World War Two. That's right.
0: Yeah, he was a pilot. Uh, pilot of um, Halifax bombers. And um, yeah, they he was um, stationed somewhere near where where Mum was. Oh, I wasn't quite exactly quite sure. He, did, he never never talked to us much about those war times. Um, but they met. I think they met at a dance at the local hall somewhere or other, and that's how it all started. And um, they got married during the war. And um, then Mum came out to Australia uh with a lot of uh a lot of English war brides actually. There was quite a quite a number of them and they uh, came out after the war uh finished. Yeah, there was there was quite a number of them came out. And um my mother very difficult time for her because she moved from um derby in the middle of winter and she arrived in Australia on New Year's Day. Ooh. Um and <laughs> middle of summer. In, and um, went from um, from Perth to Sydney, and then from Sydney to Northern New South Wales, uh, in the uh, on the farm where Dad was Dad was working in, in the first couple of days of January, in the middle of summer. So it was uh, a bit of a contrast. A bit of a, there. a bit of a contrast for my mother. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's very interesting.
1: Uh, we could have had you opening the batting for England. Um, Well, you could have, but
0: my father would have had something to say about that.
1: Well, we've had quite a few Australians now uh, of sorts playing for England, so you could have been one of those. Um, (laughs) But moving on, talking about battles, you then played in the Centenary Test between England and Australia, uh, um, which started on the 12th of March 1977. That must have been a memorable occasion to play in with people like Don Bradman, Mm. Keith Miller, being in attendance at the game,
0: it was it was absolutely amazing, and uh, just the atmosphere built, uh, leading up to the um, leading up to the match was uh, amazing in itself. Where there were so many uh, dinners and receptions, and so much uh, promotion about the game, a um, lot of hype in radio and TV, and um, and just the the opportunity to see. And meet up with so many ex-test players, not only the Australians, but the English players as well, ones that uh, were just names prior to that. And so it was just an amazing atmosphere. And what it did was uh, built up this, um, you know, tremendous pressure, I guess, on us as players, uh, because it was a test match against England and it was going to be in front of test players, ex-test players from Both Australia and England. And so it was going to be, yeah, well, obviously it was a huge occasion, but an occasion where we had to, to a certain extent, put that beside us, behind us, and focus on the game itself. And that was very difficult to do, especially in the first morning when there's all the hype and the captains. Ex-English and Australian captains were all paraded out on the ground and introduced to the crowd, and we were introduced to the crowd. and And there were 60 or 70,000 people at the MCG. So, <clears throat> and then to for our captain Greg Chappell to lose the toss, and we were asked to to bat and to go out on that first morning. And it was, like, you know, you could feel that everybody was tense and uh, there was excitement everywhere. So it was no real surprise to us that both teams weren't able to settle down on those first two days, and so neither team were able was able to uh, to get into a good rhythm and and uh, and get you know get partnerships going. So yeah, it was it was exciting. It was uh, fantastic just to be part of this amazing occasion and a dramatic
1: match, of course, for you. We. Being a dismissed bold, but um, breaking your jaw in the process from from Bob Willis. Mm. How long did you spend in
0: in hospital during the game? Uh, but the from the end of that first day, uh, it took a while for the doctors to realise that things weren't, <clears throat> weren't weren't quite so good. Uh, towards the end of the day, and then for the next two days, and um, so I came out, <clears throat> was back in the dressing room. On the third day of the match, so yeah it wasn't wasn't too bad so but the worst part about that first day was actually the fact that um, the ball hit the stumps and I was out and, um, and that probably hurt more than anything at that at that time uh, and it wasn't until later when um, when the numbness started to wear off that um, yeah things started to hurt a bit and then you famously came back to bat in the
1: uh... Second innings batting at number 10, and it, of course, we're pre helmet days. Who, That's right. who, whose decision was it to, to bat again? Was that yours or
0: it was mine? Um, but I, I asked um, our captain Greg Greg Chapel, uh, that uh, told him that I would like to bat if, if that was possible, and he said, Well, look, um, you know, the risks, it's your decision, um, and in fact. We I, I thought it was important for a couple of reasons for me to, to go out because at that point in time um our wickkeeper Rod Marsh was approaching the century. Um this would have been you know a fantastic milestone for him to get a century in the centenary test and we we're running out of wickets. And uh, we also realised that we needed more runs um because England had a very good batting side. Uh the wicket was um a very good batting wicket by that stage. And the other reason was that um, I'd, I hadn't, apart from the first half hour, 40 minutes, I hadn't taken part in any part at all in this fantastic match. So I wanted to, to be out there to be part of it, to do something and to try and do something worthwhile for the team and just to, to be out there and absorb the, the atmosphere. And uh, there were still 60 70,000 people there in the ground every day. And so that was... Uh, and there was no, dis- no decision really. I was, I was just one of those things. But um, reflecting on that today, there's no way in the world I'll be allowed to go back out today um, with all the, um, protocols, uh, no. all the protocols that take place now. Uh, there's, no, there's no way it would happen. But um, at the time, I didn't feel any particular danger, partly because the weekend was so flat and the English bowlers had been in the field for more than a day. Um, they were you know, relatively tired. It had been a hot day. So I, I didn't really feel in, in any particular physical danger, and I wanted to get out there and, and contribute uh, to, this, to this match. Well, your uh,
1: 25 runs um, and the partnership with Rodney Marsh, despite England's batting in the second innings with Derek Randall's 174, mm. Australia managed to win by 45 runs. So you Correct. did make a difference.
0: <laughs> we did, yeah. The partnership was 55. I mean, we'll never, we'll never know what would have happened had had I not gone out and we didn't have that partnership. We might still have won anyway. Who knows? But um, it was just uh, an amazing, you know, we didn't realise until afterwards in the dressing room re- reflecting on the result and realising that um, it was the same result as the original test match 100 years previous. And um, it, um, yeah, it, it was a cause for uh, our joker, Doug Walters, to comment that in 100 years, English cricket has, hasn't learned a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so there'd been no, no change in 100 years of uh, England's Australian cricket. That, we all thought that was pretty clever at the time. After the centenary test, then you came on
1: your second Ashes tour to England. And I was only reading earlier today that it was May the 9th when it was leaked that the Packer series was going to start. Uh, Did that development affect the performance of the Australian team? And were there some divisions in the side because some people weren't in the Packer
0: series during that tour? To be honest, I think, yes, there probably was. Um, we probably didn't realise it to the full extent at that time. Um, our team in 77 was nowhere near the same team as two years previously in 75. Um, it was a lot less um, experienced. And there, was, there were two or three members of the team who hadn't been contracted to World Series cricket. And whilst we, we tried very hard to allow that to have, have an effect, I think it was very difficult not to have, have some effect. And I think in the end it did. Um, our, apart from Greg Chappell, um, our performances were, were pretty ordinary, particularly myself. But it was very difficult summer. Well, it wasn't a summer. It was colder and wetter than, than our winter. Um, in '77, it was a dreadful season in England, and so it was very difficult, particularly for an opening batsman, and uh, to to bat under those conditions. That was that was my excuse, but um, other the other things were you know, for me personally. Um, I I was about uh, two weeks late in meeting up with the um, with the team, partly because I had to wait an extra week to uh, have the wire screens taken out of uh, out of my mouth and then I was about to board board a plane in Sydney to fly to London and um, there was a air controller strike and so I had to wait another week. so I was two weeks behind everybody and so by the time I got there it, I was you know I was basically behind the eight ball trying to catch up and um, not having been able to do any physical activity for nearly two months prior to that, it was I had a lot of catching up to do. That took me until about the was it the third test and uh, a county game just prior to that to to start scoring some runs. So, so for me personally, it wasn't a good tour. I didn't obviously didn't enjoy it as much as '75 for lots of reasons. You did get a, a century at Trent Bridge, which
1: was a. Um, pretty significant game when it was Jeff Boycott's return to Test cricket. It was Ian Botham's right. first um, Test yes. match, and uh, right. the first the first ball that Ian Botham bowled in a Test match was to yourself.
0: Um yeah I can't recall that. But yeah, um, I've, I've, I've checked
1: that, and, it, and it's actually <laughs> it's actually in Ian Botham's book because Ian Botham makes take comment. He went. He makes comment that. Um, uh, you put the ball through third slip, and he should have had a third slip. Ah, uh, he would have. He it,
0: it would have been meant to go there. I wouldn't have. Uh, 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 it was guided through uh, there. Yeah, 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 guided. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, but I think um, yeah. Uh, initially, unfortunately, I don't think we the the, the, the batsman in our Australian side um, realised how good Ian Botham was, and um, he certainly you yeah, know. Found us out very quickly, and um, had a had a very good um, uh, a very good test match, very good test debut, and obviously a fantastic career. Um, we took him a little bit lightly, I think, in that in that first test match. But uh, unfortunately, um, Jeff Boycott, he should have been out probably in the first session um, of Benny Pascoe. He was dropped in second slip um, by yours truly so i remember that unfortunately uh, so he got 100 in that in that innings He we lost that test match he got 100 in uh, headingley we lost that test match and so we lost the ashes um so it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, a very pleasant time for us
1: well then you went home and uh, you then obviously played in the super tests as they were called was it an easy decision to sign up for were you still working for the bank then as well I was and it wasn't an easy decision
0: um, I think um, well the, the financial aspect uh, was part of it but not the major aspect um, for me um, by the time because I was I wasn't one of the um, you know the most important um, members of the Australian team I knew that if I was had been um, asked to join to to sign a contract, I wouldn't have been the first one. So I knew that that um, if I'd been asked, then a whole lot of other people were, and it was going to happen anyway. But I wanted to be able to play uh, with and against the best players in the world, and um, that was it. That I feel that's the only way that you can really gauge how good you are if you are any good at all. And so that's what I wanted to do. The, the financial aspect. Um, was um yeah it was important i guess because at that point in time i was married with two young boys and uh, living in sydney uh had a, a, a position in the bank um which wasn't all that brilliantly well paid but um trying to maintain that employment uh while at the same time being asked to play more and more international cricket by australian cricket board so um so in the end, before I left England, left for England in the seventy-seven tour after the centenary test, I'd made the decision to uh, to join, and but it was mainly because I wanted to play with and against the best players in the world, um, and um, yeah, look, it was it was a decision. I look back on it and think, well, if I'd decided not to join, what would have happened? Um, would I have still been selected for Australia? Um, where where would have all where would have my career have gone? I don't really know. But in hindsight, uh, I was very happy for uh, to have made the decision, even though those two years in World Series were the toughest two years of cricket um, that I had been involved in. And uh, every game was an international game. You had no no uh, club games to, to fall back on, no state games to fall back on. We weren't we were ostracised. Uh, from our teammates, from our clubmates, and so we are completely on our own. So it was difficult times, but um, in hindsight, I believe I made the right decision. Well, oh, thank you for that. It was very interesting because one of my questions was how
1: tough was the cricket, and you just explained that. And uh, like I, you probably do know this fact, but you did uh, face the first ball in Super Test cricket. I did.
0: I did. Ah. And ah. to follow on from that, I was the first batsman out in <laughs> court. I think by the way, caught court, Viv Richards bowled Andy Roberts or something like that. I know it was Andy Roberts. So that's that's not something that um, I was too pleased about. But just on, on facing first ball, you've mentioned that twice. Uh, as it turned out, when I look back, in the 1975 tour of England, I faced the first uh, ball in the Ashes series. Um, and I faced the last ball in the Ashes series, so the first ball at Edgebaston, and the last ball at the Oval um, when we were batting in our second innings. So, um, yeah, first and last. Um, yeah, that, <laughs> I'm not sure whether that that's re- very relevant, but for me, it's it's something anyway. Well, you came back
1: and played for Australia after the Packer series. Um and you made your final test appearance again against England on the 1st of February, 1980. You captained New South Wales to the Sheffield Shield final in March, 1983. Um, That's right. Were you ready to retire then in uh, 1984?
0: Yeah, at the end of the 1984 season, I stood down as New South Wales captain and just um, played as a player, and um, I felt at the end of that season that I was ready. Partly from a physical point of view, I found it uh, difficult. Um, in the pre-season training, middle of winter out here, not a lot of fun. So I thought, well, maybe there is other things that I could be doing. Besides, at that stage, um, I, I, I really wanted to, to start playing tennis, um, playing competition tennis. Tennis was my first love. And I really enjoyed that, and uh, finished up you know, playing uh, tournaments, and um, and in the um, uh, vets New South Wales veterans tournaments. So I really enjoyed that for uh, probably for a number of years. So and besides that, I had a young family, I had a business uh, that I needed to spend more time with, and um, I just felt that the time was right.
1: So your business career continued after cricket, and then you made a complete career change in 2012 when you became the Catholic chaplain to the port of Newcastle. How did that come about?
0: That's a good question. I'm still wondering how it happened. But um, yeah, 2000 and a year before or 2012, I actually retired from my business. I had a financial planning business. And I retired from there, and I was just finishing up a uh, th- three-year Christian formation course, and uh, through our, our church. And um, at the end of that, I was I was just at the stage where I was thinking, well, what now? What happens now? And um, I really had nothing on the horizon, nothing definite. And uh, so I was wondering, well, where do I go from here? And uh, r- just at that time. Uh, I was approached and, a tap, and I had the actual tap on the shoulder and um, I was asked, would I uh, consider uh, becoming the Catholic chaplain at the Port of Newcastle? And at that stage, I had absolutely no idea what that was all about. Um, and so, but I thought, well, this is something I really should have a look at because I, nothing else was happening at the time. So I went, I spent a week there, and I thought at the end of that, this is something that I think is very worthwhile, something I could really become involved in and do something uh, definitely worthwhile for others. How and, big a port uh, is Newcastle? Well, Newcastle is the biggest and um, the busiest coal exporting port in the world. Um so, because we have within New South Wales got a, a there's a, a coal uh, is a very big industry, and uh, the export to mainly to Asian countries is uh, is immense, and um, we we get um, on average about fifty thousand um, visiting seafarers coming to our port every year, um, anything up to about ten or twelve every week. And um, so my job as chaplain was to uh, to do. Uh, we have a t- have a team here in Newcastle. Um, we have a a mission centre, and our role was my role was to try and do whatever I could to make the life of the seafarer a little bit better. Um, very tough life. They mainly came from come from uh, Asian countries, predominantly Philippines. Uh, underpaid, overworked. Um, very uh, dangerous work they do, and um, very very rarely could they get off their vessel. So, part of our part of my role was to actually go on board and visit them, and if if possible, to spend some time with the uh, ship captain, because he could very rarely ever get off, off the of the vessel, and he was under a lot of pressure. So, in Newcastle when they they arrived, because we got um, very good. Um, a whole load of facilities. The vessels might have travelled fifteen or sixteen days from China, arrived in Newcastle, may only be in in the port for eighteen hours, and then turn around and go back to China again, or to um, yeah, to Vietnam or wherever. So we didn't have, We had very limited time to do what we could. So part of that time, we would go on board. We would encourage the captain to allow some of his crew to come come ashore. And we would have mini buses that would uh, go to the wharf, pick up the seafarers, bring them into the mission centre, take them down to our shopping centre, do shopping, and just be part of part of a human community again. And uh, so that was very important for us. And uh, but and for me as a chaplain, I was able to on during my time as chaplaincy probably about twelve or fifteen times to be able to arrange a. Catholic mass service on board for a Filipino crew and that was very important for them um, because uh, they're very, very um, strong Catholic faith, most of them, and it was very important that they were able to provide take a priest on board and be able to have a Catholic service for them, particularly if they'd arrived in in Newcastle and there'd been incidents on board the ship, which often, with well, not often, but some quite or sometimes, there'd been either a death on board uh, or there'd been a suicide. Um, a, a seafarer had had enough and just decided to jump overboard. Um, those sort of things were happening, and so it was very difficult for us to be able to to do much for them in a the very short period of time. So we could just do whatever we could for them. To try and make their life just that little bit better. So it's a bit more difficult now, uh, as you can appreciate, Stephen, with um, coronavirus. You're still volunteering
1: now, aren't you? You're still volunteering. We are still
0: volunteering, myself and my wife. We volunteer. Um, I spent about five years as chaplain, but now we still volunteer and we do whatever we can. But um, due to the coronavirus, uh, we're not allowed to uh, go on board the vessel. And the seafarers are not allowed to come off off their vessel, so they're basically imprisoned on their ship, and for as long as their their contracts last, and for how, and until somehow or other they're able to be taken off the vessel and, um, and and flown home, which in some cases has been you know 12, 15 months before they're able to get a flight back home. So difficult times for them. But we still do what we can for them. We provide um, personal uh, gift packs for them. And uh, the port, port authorities and border force allow us to take those gift packs out to the wharf and uh, um, leave them on the wharf. The seafarers come down and pick and take the board. So um, a very important time for us is uh, leading up to Christmas. During the, the week, um, Christmas week, we're able to deliver to their wharves, 1,100 individual personal gift packs, Christmas packs. So for every seafarer that came into the port for about a week or 10 days, we were able to give them a a gift pack at Christmas time. Not much, but at least it was something uh, because these seafarers were not going to be able to see their family, get home for Christmas. So it was just a little something that we could do and so it was very important important for them and very important for us that we're able to do this. Yeah, it sounds like you uh, get great jobs,
1: job satisfaction yourself out of helping people. Um, we do.
0: Yeah, and we just so feel so um, sorry, I guess, for the seafarers because um, having been able to, to speak with them different times over the years, we get a bit of an understanding of what they go through. And um, their time on board the vessels is is very hard for them, particularly if they're on board with a say a crew of twenty, and the officers may be Chinese perhaps, and the crew maybe Filipino or Myanmar. Uh, completely different cultures, different food they eat, different lifestyles, but they have to live with it for for however long they're on board the ship. So. Um, sometimes we hear of physical bullying, cultural bullying. Um, so we have to, if we hear of that, we have to be very careful how we deal with that because whilst they're in port, they're safe. But 300 miles out to sea, they're on their own. So whilst they're here, if we hear of something, we have to take it very uh, secretly to a government authority here in Newcastle called AMSA is the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, and allow them to deal with it. They have the authority to retain a vessel if they feel that circumstances strong enough that they should um, retain the vessel until something is, uh, you know, fixed.
1: Well, that was that was very interesting. It's uh, obviously something you you really enjoy doing, and you're obviously doing some very valuable work there. Very different from opening the batting. On a, on a dodgy wicket or a fast track at the wacker, oh, uh,
0: Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And occasionally, look, um, we, went, not, we can't now because seafarers can't kind of come in to our mission centre, but quite often we would get a, um, an Indian crew would come in and um, particularly the, the crew, not so much the officers, but particularly the crew, as soon as you mention the word cricket, their eyes would light up and you could spend the ne- next half hour having a, a conversation with them and talking about, you know, Vera Coley. And um, I mean, I've asked the question many times as to who they regard as the, the best batsman in the world. And then I'm going back a half a dozen years now. And um, and I, I I would have thought at the time they would have said Sachin Tendulkar, but they immediately they would say Michael Clark. Uh, and then they'd say Ricky Ponting. So that was. Uh, their understanding of how good international cricketers were—not just their their own from their own country—but their knowledge of cricket was amazing, and you know they could they could talk about statistics and what happened in this Test match and you know, all, all those sorts of things. So it was it was fun you know, talking to them. Well, um, thank you very much
1: for bringing us up to date where. And what Rick McCosker is doing these days. Thank you very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion. It's been a pleasure. You've got uh, obviously 2021 to look forward to. England, England coming to Australia and coming home yes, yes. with the coming back with the urn, of course.
0: Uh, 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 did I hear you correctly? <laughs> well, hopefully, there won't be two-day test matches in Australia. No, they won't. That's, that wouldn't happen. But uh, look, um, we're really, we're looking forward here in Australia to the Ashes Series. It is always the, the pinnacle of uh, international cricket at the moment, even though India is the number one uh, cricket nation from their results. But still, the uh, Ashes Series uh, is the ultimate as far as, uh, well, certainly from Australian cricketers' point of view uh, and for most of our followers as well. So we're looking forward to it. We know it'll be tough. Um, England always have a good team, but we think we might be too good. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? we thanks will.
1: again Thanks again for being on the, on the Paddock and the Pavilion. It's a pleasure, Stephen. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad.